You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Avram Kivilevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. I know you're waiting for our tagline, 40 years thereof. It's coming. But first, you've heard me on this platform touting NRS, a great company whose many dedicated employees I get to see in action. NRS Pay has recently launched its new cost-cutting program called Cash Discount. The way it works is any vendor using NRS Pay Cash Discount has their sale register tabulating automatically a dual pricing, which offers customers a choice of a cash payment, which could result in an up to 4% discount over swiping their card. If your business meets the $18,000 a month threshold, there's absolutely no monthly fee to incur. NRS Pay Cash Discount makes it less expensive to accept credit cards, so you'll save money while helping your customers save at the same time. NRS is offering a time-limited deal right now on this state-of-the-art system. You'll get a free card reader with zero hidden fees, no long-term contract, and no early termination fee, which means you can switch your processing plan without penalty. NRS Pay is a proud part of the IDT Corporation that I've been associated with for over 10 years and has integrity built into its corporate DNA. I know its founder, its officers, and salespeople, and they truly stand by their product and will help you with live stateside-based customer service on any issue or question. Check nrspay.com for more information or call 833-289-2767. And now, Emeritus Rex. 75 years of Medina Yisrael. This is Emeritus Rex with Rabbi Ruben Yeshua Pupko of Beth Israel, Beth Aaron, Cote St. Luke's premier synagogue. Let me start with something that I read this morning, a sort of critical take on on Gilad Erdan. Gilad Erdan is the ambassador to the United Nations on behalf of Israel. And a, a couple of days ago, uh, he made a point of... Wearing a yellow star, yes. Yes, making an, 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 an constant Holocaust references and talking about how all of this is being engineered by the Fuhrer. He called him, the Ayatollah was the Fuhrer. And, and there was a little bit of a, a diplomatic brouhaha that Erdan had sort of gone rogue. Well, I don't, listen, I, it's hard to know. We don't know. Not hard to know. We don't know if this was approved by the, his uh, bosses in the foreign ministry. We don't know. What we do know is that Danny Dion, I think it is, at the Yad Vashem, criticized him for it. Uh, listen, we're in a very emotional time. 1,400 Jews uh, were slaughtered on uh, October the 7th, accompanied by brutality and butchery that none of us have ever uh, uh, you know, heard of uh, in our lifetime. And it's an overwhelming, crushing experience. The, you know, the Jewish people are collectively sitting shit uh, still. It hasn't been 30 days since the event. And uh, we're, we're all in a state of grief and mourning, uh, shock and anger. Uh, there's no question, and uh, not everyone is going to is going to say the right thing at the right moment or do the right thing. I saw an article by Anshul Pfeffer. Anshul wrote something in Haaretz where he said that that there was a, a concentrated effort to align Hamas with ISIS because ISIS is still in the collective memory of so many people in that area and here in America as well as this snake that needed to be uprooted and we're going to go to war. I think when ISIS was first invoked as an analogy, I don't think people realized how relevant that analogy is because 
when we first heard of all this, we didn't know of all the butchery yet. And, 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 and I, I don't know if people remember, I think they do, as you say, uh, the beheadings that ISIS would broadcast. So in that sense, uh, the analogy is compelling. It's not just the terrorism, the ideology, but the filming of grotesque butchery, whether, you know, you know, some of people remember Daniel Pearl's beheading. Yes, yes. You know, yeah. uh, and, and the other beheadings that took place and, uh, and, and the filming of it, you know, turning it into, into snuff films. I, I don't know how, you know, I'm not sure we have the right word. So people desperately look for analogies. I'm not sure. Right, but I, th- I think what, what Dayan's problem, the Yad Vashem administrator, was that he said, oh, it's it's an insult to the memory of the Jews who suffered in the Holocaust, and it was an act of, you know, brazen, grotesque showmanship that of what Erdan did. But I think Pfeffer, your friend, I think hit it, hit the nose, uh, hit, hit it on the nose that ISIS, unlike the Nazis who are called out everywhere, everybody's a Nazi right now when you don't like somebody, ISIS, there has been a consensus especially among the U.S. and its allies. And therefore, the more it's conflated and con- connected with ISIS, uh, the more, you know, you lower the, the temperature, but you also direct the, the missiles towards this specific target. So I, I guess the real point is, the way I, the way I understand it, is that Klapi Pnim, we have to realize this is an ancient hatred and this is another manifestation of that type of uh, Jew hatred that uh, Nazism indicates. However, in terms of selling it to the outside, Hasbara, we probably should not overdo the comparison because not the, the term Nazi is thrown around so often. I'll tell you my first instinct when I saw the picture of them sitting in the UN General Assembly wearing the yellow star is I found it jarring and I found it and I thought it inappropriate. And I'll tell you my reasons. To me, the yellow star is a symbol of Jewish helplessness and stigmatization. And I don't think that's what we're living with. That means as much as the hatred against the Jew hasn't changed at all, I mean, what we're really witnessing now is ancient anti-Semitic impulses with a post-modernist gift wrapping. We're, we're seeing the same stuff. Yeah, it has a new vocabulary and all that, but we know what it is. And all of that, nothing's changed in that hatred. Uh, what has changed dramatically is the condition of the Jew, specifically the political position of the Jew, the power position of the Jew. So to resurrect a symbol of an era of Jewish helplessness at this juncture, I found jarring and inappropriate. I, I would have to agree with the director of Yad Vashem. I don't know if I would go so far as to say it's an insult to the memory. I think it's an insult to the state of Israel. I think yes. it's an insult to uh, to to reality. I mean, reality yeah. is we are not ghettoized. We are not helpless victims. We are not. And, uh, you know, everyone has said it, myself included, 2023 is not 1943 because we are in a radically different position. You know, uh, one of the things we said after the Holocaust is that Jewish blood will not be shed with impunity. And it's not. Justice is being served right now as we speak in Gaza. Yeah. Right, justice is being done, not vengeance, justice. And Jewish life is not shed with impunity. So, uh, you know, to, to resurrect a symbol from a time where we were helpless and powerless and Jewish lives were taken with impunity is inappropriate. 
Right. And I, I would just add one other thing that despite the, the tremendous number of Corbonis on, the, on, on October 7th and the continuing death toll, which we'll talk a little bit about, Nazi Germany at that point, when at the inception of the war, it, the case could be made that they were the most powerful war machine on the sure. planet. And they had the means and you see how uh, the effect of this – Yes, this was an incursion which was similar to 40,000 Americans dying vis-a-vis uh, -vis the population. But we don't have to necessarily see this genocidal texts of Hamas's – there is their mission statement – as the ability to actually carry that out as the Nazis had done. And, and therefore, it's an overreaction to who we're fighting. You said last week you don't see – this becoming – other than Le uh, Hezbollah and Lebanon, you don't see Syria, you don't see Jordan, you don't see Egypt coming in and, and, and as, as if, oh, we're, we're now again uh, going to be attacked by great armies and there's going to be uh, – Tel Aviv is going to be raised to the ground and Jerusalem is going to be taken back. None of us really believe that that could ever happen. And, and therefore, the, the comparison to the assault – from Nazi Germany and from the Hitler's war machine is also an overstatement. Listen, there's a tendency on everybody's part in this to draw analogies. And we all know that wisdom is demonstrated not by the drawing of analogies, but by the drawing of distinctions. We all know that. Yes, a Amalek is a Amalek. All that is the same. But to compare our moment to other moments is a is treacherous territory. Yet we have to be careful to understand what this moment represents. Binu dor vadar. Understand this moment. And yes, first things. Oh my God, this is like whatever. You know, America, Columbia, Harvard. It's like Germany in the 1930s. No, it's not. It's absolutely not. Right. You have a, a government in, in Washington, you know, uh, getting together with Jewish leaders about a new uh, effort to combat anti-Semitism. I'm not telling you it'll be successful, but it's a different world. It's a different world. We don't have Nuremberg logs. It's not Germany in the 1930s. If you say this moment is Germany in the 1930s, you really don't understand Germany in the 1930s. OK, and you don't understand Poland in the 1930s, the rise of it. Yes, there is horrific, horrific stubborn hatred for the Jew that has, again, acquired new vocabulary uh, that, that is very present on campuses. But also, the, you know, they did a, a massive poll of, of Americans, uh, you know, since the war started since October 7th. 88% of Americans support Israel. I mean, it's remarkable numbers. Yes, the people who are loudest, the people with their hands on the levers of culture, right, media, academia, those are the people who are most inclined to be antagonistic towards Jews and to Israel. No question. But, you know, I mean, unfortunately, people send me every video they've ever seen. And you see videos of non-Jews stopping Palestinian activists and, and, and leftists from ripping down uh, posters of the kidnap of uh, victims in, in Gaza. We're not alone. We are not alone. Britain, I mean, let's, let's remember where we are. Okay, Jeremy Corbyn is no longer head of the Labour Party. Right. The, the, the current, the current leader of the Labour Party in England said a call for a ceasefire benefits only Hamas. That's the opposition in Britain. Forget the government which, of Britain, which has been wonderfully supportive. Germany has been wonderfully supportive. I'm not telling you it's perfect in Europe, 
But Europe today is not Europe of 10 or 15 years ago, even. Europe is better now in its leadership. I'm not talking about the streets of London. I'm talking about, or Paris. You know, in the 20 schools in Paris had to shut, in Geneva they had to shut. We know the anti-Semitic actions. But the governments in Europe are much more supportive than they were. People need to recognize that. You know, you have political parties in Europe competing for who can be most supportive of Israel. It's much better than it was. Bolivia, I saw today in the paper, Bolivia has cut ties, diplomatic ties with Israel because of war crimes that Israel was committing in Gaza. And, and as you're correct in pointing out, we, we think about Europe and Londistan, Londinistan and all the stuff that goes on in, on, in the European front in terms of anti-protest. And, and as you said before, the governments there, and I think that's a very good point, Ralph, that the governments are very uh, supportive, despite the fact that they let in all this chaff. Uh, 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 various well, I would say it's because they let in that they are supportive, because they had a firsthand experience with what Israel's been dealing with for 75 years. It's because of the presence of radicals in Europe that they are much more. Yeah, but they haven't cracked down on them. They still let them. They still let them congregate. They still let them uh, run in the Let's streets. Talking about Western democracies that have uh, strict rules about freedom of expression, but look what France did. France banned, ban- you know, the Libya and Venezuela. And again, I, I, I don't want to rely on my memory here, but there's an axis of countries in South America that are uh, very left-wing, that have been the beneficiaries of Iranian uh, financial support that have now created, you know, a, a serious problem in South America, mostly because of American neglect. And yet, and you have, and you have some very, very strident left-wing political figures uh, in South American countries. And that's a serious problem. I mean, we, you know, we used, you know, it's been 20 years since we've been talking about the Hezbollah triangle, you know, in, in terms of drug smuggling and funding their, their terrorist operations that exists in, in, in South America. South America is a serious problem. Absolutely. But again, it's not, it's not all of South America. We have to give things in perspective. But you have a country like Mexico that is veered to the left that may correct itself in the next election. There are serious problems in South America. Politics will be shocked. Like what's Bolivia doing in this mix? But if you've been following what's going on in Bolivia, it's completely consistent with how they've been behaving and talking. Let's move to, you know, the the heart of the conflict. The invasion, yes, no, it seems like it has started. We're sitting here on Wednesday, November the 1st. It started on Friday night, uh, this past Friday night. The most significant Battles took place yesterday around Jabalia. They've taken over a Hamas military uh, uh, base or command center in Jabalia. There were terrible casualties. Uh, we lost, I believe it is now, 11 soldiers, and the ages are, are are tragically young, and we've lost more that haven't been notified yet. The families haven't been notified yet. I, I want to take note in this way. I don't know if this was yesterday or the day before. I know that I heard this morning that the Rosh Hashiva in Osniel of Benjamin Kelmanson had lost, has now lost two children. Again, two children, two soldiers. Listen, these are the best, best kids we've ever had. Remarkable young people. Every day since October 7th have brought us more stories of the uh, barbarism of the enemy, but every day also has brought us remarkable stories of heroism uh, on the part of Israelis. And those stories need to be told and they need to be uh it need to be remembered and taught and cherished. But um, listen, we're going through a very dark chapter. 
you know, all logic demands that we know that there will be more sacrifices in, in the near in, in the near term. We just all hope and pray that it ends quickly and, and successfully, because um, these are uh, uh, these are battles in you know in terrible places. Uh, this is Mosul and Fallujah times uh, you know to, to times twenty. From from what you've been able to pick up, again, obviously, you know, you we're hearing it from the IDF. But your sense is that these, the beginning, these initial confrontations have been successful for our side. Yeah, but but it's again, it's uh, listen. These are this is a daunting military ch- challenge to fight uh, irregular soldiers who have been highly trained, many of them in Iran, uh, who are embedded themselves among civilians, who have a tunnel network that you know that rivals that of the New York City subway system and they are and they are deep underground and uh, surprises terrible surprises are possible here and um Israel is moving slowly and methodically which is the way to do it uh neither of us are military experts but you have to salute the army for its its care it's taking to fight this battle in a way that uh, accomplishes its goal while also increasing the odds that our soldiers survive and 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 and, and arm arm. On that end, on that end, let me just let me just tell you that I spoke this week uh, with uh, a parent of two people who were called up a, a young man and a young woman, and one of the things that I was so impressed was that the people behind the scenes know where to plug these people in. Uh, this this fellow's son was a commander of a unit in one of the previous Gaza incursions. And uh, he was an expert in house-to-house fighting. He's, he's a reservist, but they knew to place him, not in the, in the present Gaza incursion, but up in Lebanon, ready in case uh, things you know, go sour there. Uh, his daughter, they understood, was a, an incredible computer uh, analyst, and they have her collating and... And, and in keeping uh, sort of a security finger on everything that's going on in the what we call the, what's called the West Bank or what's called over the Green Line, cities like Efrat and others. So what I'm trying to point out is, is that it's not only methodical in terms of the boots on the ground, there is a brain trust that knows who to tap and where to send people. Oh yeah, because I know many kids who were sent home already because there was a huge number that were called up. Many, you know, who who weren't called up went in. So people are being assigned in the places where they're needed. In some cases, sent home when they're not needed. And there's is some kind. There's there's no question. The last three weeks, the government, uh, I mean, as to say, the army uh, is, is has been preparing and uh, and preparing well and. Uh, and let's just hope and pray again. I just keep saying the same thing, quick and, and successful. Because right, Although Netanyahu is telling the country that this is going to be long and we have to yes. get ready. I mean, yes. I mean I, I, again, I, I'm, we hope and pray, but realism you know, demands uh, expectation of, of, of a longer conflict. Also, nobody knows what happens the day after. Nobody knows what happens the day after. Uh, right. I, I think one of the things, you know, unlike – you know, you know, you say we're not military experts, but we do remember previous wars and we do remember, you know, even, you know, the Yom Kippur War, which didn't last that long. And and and, and there was a an ability because of its the alacrity of 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 
of, of what was going on because of the quick nature of the battles, it was easy to tap into people's feelings and to get people aroused and to get people. I, I'm already seeing here in, in the Northeast, because of the length that this is taking, it's 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 hard to keep up that the drumbeat. Well, there's no question. Of, I, I would say, I mean, I don't know, every community may be different, but there's a bit of fatigue setting in. But again, yeah, it's remarkable what's been accomplished in North America, the amount of money that's been raised, the amount of rallies and, and demonstrations of solidarity that, that have occurred. Uh, we did a massive rally this past Sunday here in Montreal. We had, uh, I don't know how many people, uh, you know, the crowd estimates are, are, are notoriously difficult to make, but certainly in the thousands and thousands uh, of people showed up in downtown Montreal outside the ICAO building, which is the UN office in Montreal. And, uh, and they're happening everywhere. They're happening in Toronto. They're in Chicago. There's New York. There's talk of a massive rally uh, to be planned for Washington. And um, there's no question that uh, our our enemies have showed up in great numbers. They are saying things which I think bring themselves into disrepute amongst the remaining civilized people uh, in the world. And, uh, and they're doing things which are horrendous and supporting things which are horrendous denying things which are, are that, that are obviously true, denying what had happened on October the 7th. And I think they're discrediting themselves by their behavior, by their rhetoric, and by their assertions. And uh, I, I think that what's going to be a huge challenge is as the casualties numbers in Gaza, uh, in the Palestinians, amongst Palestinians, when, that, when those numbers go up, is going to be a bigger challenge because there's going to be horrific pictures. And I want to tell you something. We say it and we mean it. Palestinian suffering is nothing we revel in. We, we all hope and pray for every life to be preserved. But, but we have to understand who's responsible for those deaths. Yeah. Uh, whether legally and morally, it is Hamas and Hamas alone, which wants as a Palestinian casualties. You know, before we move to the, the positive story that I told you I wanted to talk about, and you, you could give us some insight of what you know, uh, let's once again dump on our good friends over in the New York Times and other places. Again, I mentioned it last week, uh, the terminologies that are used the overblown way that everything is described again feeds into you know the, the hands of of, of, of Hamas. Uh, there's no question about that. Listen, let, 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 let's be blunt here. Anybody calling for a ceasefire today is doing so out of an intense desire to make sure Jews remain vulnerable. That's what a ceasefire means. A ceasefire means that God forbid Jews should be safe and secure. Number two. The question everyone should be asking themselves is why is it that an attack on, on Jews of 1400 and the way, the manner in which it was carried out, the celebrations which it triggered throughout the Arab world, right? <laughs> Even amongst Muslims here in North America, right? And the aftermath of something so horrendous, why would that trigger an increase? And anti-Semitic attacks. And the re, the answer, the, the best answer, and I think the truest answer is that the existence of the Jewish people, the flourishing of the state of Israel, is the greatest evidence to debunk the left-wing view of the world. The left-wing view of the world is that people are locked in eternally into the position of, of oppressor or oppressed. That if you're a victim 400 years ago from having your land taken by pilgrims or 
or African Americans victimized terribly by slavery forever. You have that status, that hallowed status as a victim, and you can never be a racist yourself, as they've said explicitly. And if you're on the other side of that bizarre idea, you know, divide in history, and you can be called an oppressor or a colonizer or an architect of systemic racism, whatever it is, you are doomed to always be thought of as evil. And this idea that you're locked into victimization forever is completely destroyed by the Jewish story. The Jewish story is one of the worst victimization in history, yet we refuse to be victims. We refuse to be victims, and we and we continue to build and create. Our very story is the greatest provocation to those on the left because it destroys their total narrative and worldview. And, uh, and that intense hatred is coming from that. They will never forgive us for surviving. The one crime we have committed that they will never forgive is the crime of Jewish survival. And not just survival, but flourishing. And they can never tolerate that. You know, what you're saying, I think, is extremely important, uh, and it is really eye-opening. I I did some research uh, yesterday about coalitions that were being formed between, you know, the nascent civil rights movement for blacks in the 1930s and Jewish movements. And the language you heard was, yes, all oppressed people have to be together. Even, I would say, what was happening in the 1950s and early 60s in terms of the leadership of the civil rights movement uh, joining hands, you know, obviously uh, Jewish lawyers and Jewish politicians and, and Jewish activists, part of the language that bonded them together was the fact, hey, we're all oppressed, we're all part of this. And if you contrast that to today, in other words, today, uh, you know, although you do have some courageous black leaders, you know, condemning, most of them, most of what we're hearing from is, oh, you know, you guys are, you're the man. We weren't the man in the 30s and 40s, but you're right. The state of Israel and I guess a, a number of, of, of changes in American economic status for Jews, the Nochem Glatzer pointed out in, in his book so many years ago, I think are responsible for putting us on the other side. And you're right. People don't want to remember that it was just it was less than 100 years ago. We were on the other side. We were the oppressed. Now – the fact that we can change, I think what you're saying is correct, that that uh, bespeaks the lie to their position. By the way, if you want to read something about what you're talking about, look at today's Wall Street Journal, a, a column by Jason Riley. It's incredible. He's a columnist for the Wall Street Journal. He talks about this uh, in, in, in a very powerful way. Uh, he calls Black Lives Matter and the world's oldest hatred. It is a wonderful editorial. And uh and he goes through all this stuff in detail, the history of the anti-Semitism in, in Black Lives Matter and long before, where there was Malcolm X and the Nation of Islam, you know, versus people like Martin Luther King and Roy Wilkins, who were very, very uh, supportive of Israel. And I'll throw in again in the 30s, you had, like I said, the coalition between people like Paul Robeson and many of uh, the, the right. Jewish people who were supporting him. Uh, let's talk about, I said, the success story. It's good to end on a positive note. We talked about the four hostages last week that were released, but this week there was an intense happiness at, at the freeing of a hostage. I'm just picturing this poor girl in Gaza who hears Israeli soldiers approaching and says, 
the two most beautiful words, you know, in Hebrew, Sahal Higia, the army is here. And to know that we live in a world where uh, where Jews will be rescued it tells you again how wrong it is to draw superficial analogies with the past. Sahal Higia and how often in history, how wonderful history would have been had there been a, a Jewish state uh, sooner and a Jewish army sooner. And we have to remember that the Jewish state has rescued Soviet Jewry, Ethiopian Jewry, Syrian Jewry, the Entebbe hostages, and hopefully will rescue these hostages. Uh, her name is Ori Megidish. Ori Megidish, and she was actually part of a of a military unit. We don't know the secret of how they found her, do we? All we know is that no, we won't we won't know that for a while. We know all we know is the soldiers were able to zero in and right. bring her back to Kiryat Gat. And again, I have a very strong connection to that city. Not only was that the place where I was at the start of the war, that is where my son lives. And I, I my wife immediately sent me the beautiful and again uh, the the beautiful spontaneous celebration in yes. Kiryat Gat when she came back uh, to her family. And if yeah. anybody is interested, our listeners can still find it, where you have dancing in the streets. And Kiryat Gat, by the way, although it's a it's a sort of industrial, grimy town, it did become sort of like an extension of cities like B'nai Brak and other places. And there is a very vibrant Hasidic community there. It's called Kretchenev. And right near the Kretchenev and Besmedrish, right in one of the, the, the center plazas, you can see dancing in the streets. You can see Haredim, people without kippos, people with kippot, and they're dancing and singing. And you know what they're singing? They're singing, Am Yisrael Chai, Am Yisrael Chai, Oda Vinu Chai, Oda Vinu Chai. I believe that's a Karlbach nigan, isn't it? And isn't it tremendous on the, on the day of his yard site? Because of course, Karlbach's yard site was 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 the, that day, and Karlbach's yard site, that song that so is so strident and beautiful, which has become almost like a second Israeli anthem to Hatikva, was, was sung by all different stripes of Jews in celebration. Yes, Sal Higia, Ode Avinu Chai. Um, let us hope, as you say, that we will continue to see those type of Hatzolos. And that type of celebration, because those celebrations are infectious. The differences between us are, are so minor compared to what binds us. Thanks again. We'll catch you hopefully soon next week. Be well. Take care. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please take a moment to share this or any of the many episodes available on our platform with friends in order to help grow our community. Until next time, Shalom. Shalom.